We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. everybody welcome back to veterans minimum this is a tremendous honor for me if you guys know one thing about me i love the 305 as a native new yorker i've been down there so many times and i am fascinated by this individual because billy corbin first of all you're the man i'm a big fan of your documentaries i've watched cocaine cowboys 10 to 15 times and i'm probably underselling that number the u the 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 part one and part two of the u 30 for 30 screwball was tremendous also first and foremost man thank you so much for your time this is a big honor for me oh thanks for inviting me nick so i see you got a lot of 305 scattered throughout the background here and on the shirt i try my best man to fit the fit the vibe of of miami right now with this uh floral print real florida dad shirt you got on there yeah, okay, okay. Maybe I'll go change it real quick before we get going. Oh, it's good. It looks good. <laughs> but, uh, dude, th- again, man, this is this is one of the coolest things about being able to create content and building a brand is being able to, to cross paths with someone like you. So I, I want to get into it. How did you first get into filmmaking, man, as a documentarian? Well, growing up in Miami in, in the 1980s, I was born in 78 in, in Florida. My family moved to Miami when I was about three And um, I was not, my brother was a very gifted athlete, my little brother, uh, but I was not. I, uh, my first at bat at the North Miami Beach Optimist T-Ball League, I struck out. And so I think that was pretty much grand opening, grand closing for my my dad's dreams of my baseball career. Um, And so I was looking for other, you know, after school extracurricular activities and in those days in Miami, there was a lot of like TV and film and commercials and modeling and that kind of work was all around um, in those days. And so uh, I had a friend who I saw on TV in a commercial who I knew from elementary school, who I thought I thought that was just the most badass thing. And so I said to my parents, I'm like, oh, I want to do that. That'll be fun. And so I started doing that. I, I went out on auditions like after school every other day or so. And, and I just started doing 
I mean, started booking jobs left and right. I mean, you name a product sector and I did a commercial uh, for it, probably detergent, sandwich meats, toys, orange juice, airlines, Disney World, you name it. And and I, I did a commercial for it and and um and I worked a lot. And then I I, I got a part in a, a movie that shot in Florida called Parenthood with Steve Martin and Keanu Reeves and Joaquin Phoenix and uh, Mary Steenburgen and um, Rick Moranis, all these really cool people um, in the late 80s. And then um, after that, I went to Los Angeles, did a lot of work out there, kind of commuted, um, was out there for like pilot season to do TV shows and movies. And then um, I retired at, a, <laughs> at like age 15 or 16 from my my, my child uh, acting career. Um, but in that time, I got to work with a lot of really incredible directors, one of whom very early in my career, Ron Howard, was of course himself a recovering child actor, you know? So I knew him from watching, you know, Nick at Night, you know, reruns of Happy Days, The Andy Griffith Show. And so to me, my, my, my idea in my head as a kid was like, acting is something you do when you're a kid, you know? like every kid plays soccer or goes to dance class or for me like oh this is like a kid's thing and then when you become grow up and become a professional like you become a director like ron howard that was like my perception of it and so that was my that became my my goal and then um when i went to high school i'm sorry middle school actually at highland oaks in miami i met my producing partner alfred spellman and we had a tv production teacher who just identified something in the both of us and literally gave us the keys to the TV studio. And Alfred and I produced the morning news that would run on the closed circuit TV in the school every day, every morning during homeroom. And so um, she partnered us up, Miss Spicer, our TV production teacher in the ninth grade. She partnered us up and we still work together to this day. So that was middle school. That was what, 92, um, maybe 93. And, and we've been working together uh, ever since. And, and it was, we formed our first production company when we were sophomores in high school. Um, and we produced an AIDS education video um, and that, that was used in all the public schools in South Florida. And that eventually, that was our first project that ever got distributed. Um, and it got distributed all over the world by a major education distribution company. And then um, we, we were going to college at that point. So we grew up going to, Alfred was going to go to the University of Florida. Uh, I was going to go to Tufts University in Medford, Massachusetts. And at some point over the summer after our senior year in high school, we decided that we wanted to like stick around in Miami and give this company that we had started building through our high school years, give it a go in the real world, so to speak, as adults or, you know, I mean, college kids, for <laughs> not, not quite adults yet. Um, and so we did, we decided to stay, attend the University of Miami and uh, try to build this company. And that's when we happened upon our the story of Raw Deal, what became the documentary, Raw Deal, A Question of Consent, which was our first documentary and our first, uh, I mean, at the time we were the youngest filmmakers in the history of the Sundance Film Festival uh, and the only ones from Miami in those days. And, um, and, and that's what kind of started us off on this, uh, on this career. What, what was it like growing up in Miami during that time? Were you aware of all the the drugs and the cocaine that's been happening? Because, Billy, the first time I went to Miami was in 2012. 
And then when I came back, I've always been fascinated by the cartel era, Pablo Escobar, the Ochoa brothers, all those guys. So when I came back, it was as if, you know, our, my phone was hacked and Netflix popped up the, the cocaine cowboys. And the one thing that really resonated with me was the part in that documentary of the before and after of like Miami in the 70s and then in the 2000s-ish of how different South Beach looked. Were you aware of Miami being that dangerous growing up? You, you should see the difference now. I mean, even from the time you made Cocaine Cowboys 15 years ago to the skyline today is extraordinary. Uh, the change. Um, I would argue the destruction of the skyline. Um, just a lot, billions of dollars in additional property that will eventually become an artificial reef. So, um, but I, I was aware when I was a kid, I was not aware of the drugs. That was not something that I was conscious of. You know, um, people doing cocaine, the trafficking, that was not something I was aware of as a child. What I was aware of was the crime and the money. That's what I was aware of. I was aware that Miami was a dangerous place or had a reputation for being a dangerous place. By you know, the early 80s, we were the murder capital of the country. Um, of course, by the mid-80s, Miami Vice had premiered, which was really trading on Miami's reputation as a dangerous, sexy, cool place. So we were aware, I was aware of the, of, of the reputation for criminality. Um, and I was aware of the money. So we grew up, um, I grew up in a, in a kind of working class neighborhood, Highland Lakes. Um, these are like modest single family homes, good, hardworking people, uh, nothing lavish, nothing, you know, no one was rich, probably very few people in the drug trade itself. When I say in the drug, I mean, hands-on, knowingly, consciously facilitating in the drug business. But didn't matter what business you were in, you were make, you were doing well. We were coming out of a great uh, coming out of a recession, uh, nationwide recession. This is the end of the oil, um, you know, uh, uh, the oil crisis, and yet Miami was flourishing. And you know, you had every every house had a new toy. There was a nice car in the driveway. There was a you know, people were adding a second story to their house. There were, these people were not in the drug business. But what everybody in Miami were all kind of guilty by geography, you know, because um, the rising tide raises all ships, to use a climate change metaphor, because I call it the only successful case study of Ronald Reagan's trickle down economics. It was really a situation in which there was so much revenue coming in from this trade, the drug trade, that it trickled down into every single strata and facet and industry in in this community. I mean, our number one and number two industries, legal industries at that time in the early 80s, were real estate and tourism. It was estimated, I think, that uh, tourism generated about um, $7 billion annually for the community. Real estate was generating about $9 billion annually for the community. And it was estimated that the drug trade was bringing in upwards of $12 billion in Miami-Dade County. So again, how does that affect a community dramatically uh, and traumatically, uh, to be fair? Uh, so I was aware of the money. And so in many ways, when we went on to make Cocaine Cowboys, it was to answer many of the awkward questions we had asked our parents, perhaps, growing up. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> what's, what's this all about? So that was what it was. It was really a curiosity about our, our community and its modern history. 
What makes Miami so polarizing and popular when it comes to, I don't want to say that Miami is synonymous with the drugs and cocaine, which it might be based on some of the uh, your content, but what makes it so polarizing? What is it about Miami that people like and the allure of it? Because, I mean, uh, me, I, I have no ties to Miami outside of just vacationing, no family down there, but it's it's one of my favorite places in the world. Well, I don't know what you mean by polarizing. I mean, it is America's Casablanca. So mm. it is and, and America's perpetual belligerent uh, teenager. It's one of the youngest cities in the country and it acts that way. You know, oh, it, it, there's it's a transient population, a lack of institutional memory. There's no respect for our institutions or our history. We're all like kids. We're all about the new shit. We're all about the new shit. We want them, you know, every once in a while, it's cool to have some retro shit for nostalgia. But for the most part, it's knock the old shit down, build the new shit. That's where the money is. That's what's hot. You know, nobody cares about preserving legacy or our history. I, I feel like that's sort of the, the responsibility that we've tried to take up at our company, Rack and Tour, is find a way to create um, in and of themselves, I think, works of popular culture with our documentaries, but also find a way to preserve uh, the, the sorted history of, of this community. So I think that Miami has a real allure. I think it's an incredibly powerful brand. You know, what we do with our genre of Florida fuckery, I mean, you could argue that that, that could wind up being very provincial, right? Like we could make movies about Miami for Miami, right? But who gives a shit outside, outside of Miami? And the reality is because of the, the brand that I was talking about, the popularity of the Miami brand, you could probably go anywhere in the world and say South Beach or Miami or Miami Beach. And even people who've never traveled before outside of their hometowns would probably know exactly what you're talking about. And so as it turns out, these docs that we do that are very Miami-centric um, have a, a, an outstanding uh, international appeal. Yeah, that's so true. And and the one thing that's really cool about the Cocaine Cowboys sort of series and, and, and the structure of it is, especially with this new one, uh, you don't really need to watch the original two in order to watch this one. Like I have buddies who, you know, last time I checked, uh, the Cocaine Cowboys one and the one with Griselda Blanco is not on Netflix. And then I was sending them links on Amazon. I was like, yo, I'm telling you, it is worth it. Trust me. It's it's amazing. Bullshit. You were sending them YouTube links, I bet. You were sending them bootleg links, I bet. On YouTube. I did go to YouTube first, but there's only like three minute clips. There's like 12 oh, really? of them. Yeah, right. But it's not. <laughs> but it's not like, hey, I'm going to be honest with you, Billy. Uh, and it was just a little bit of, of that. And then you can rent it for like whatever. But with this one, what was really cool is this one really focused on the like actual Miami guys like Willie and Sal, right? And their rise to power. And there was something I heard you say, or it might've been a tweet of yours about how it's always better to talk about the rise as opposed to the fall when you're doing something like this. What was what was so unique about these two guys as opposed to the other times you were going through the, the original Cocaine Cowboy documentaries? I don't know that it's better to talk about the rise. It's certainly more fun for the audience. You know, that, you know, I think that, that part of it. Um, but I, I will say that, that, yeah, I think it's, I think it's helpful, right? I should say it enhances the viewing experience. If you've seen the first three cocaine Cowboys documentaries, cocaine Cowboys, cocaine Cowboys two, particularly cocaine Cowboys reloaded uh, from 2014. I think it gives you more ex like backstory of Miami and more historic uh, historical context but it's totally unnecessary. I mean, you could watch Kings of Miami cold 
and it's not like, oh, I need to know what happened or it's, there's no, yeah, there's no continuity or, you know, uh, with, with the earlier docs, the earlier docs, I think just help you understand maybe the, the criminal history of Miami. And it gives you, I think it gives you like, like I said, it's, it enhances the viewing experience, but it's not a prerequisite. I, I don't like movies that have homework, you know, <laughs> where like you have to come in and you'd be like, you know, like I see if you skip one Marvel movie, like I feel like I'm lost, you know, like it's like you have all this homework you got to do in order to just drop in. You can't just drop in in the middle of the cinematic universe. You know, you have to watch like 40 movies in order to figure out what the hell's happening. So that's not true with this. You can come in cold with the Kings of Miami on Netflix and there's no trouble following uh, along. Um, but uh, I'll say that I think there's a lot of appeal. Let me look at Scarface. Look at any of these uh, uh, stories about crime or criminals and these rise and falls. I mean, first of all, they all end the same, right? They're all dead or in prison by the end of the story. There's very few happy endings for people who go, who, ch who choose or don't choose, but fall into this life, right? Um, but uh, I think that um, if you are in your 20s, living in Miami in the 1980s, and you become a millionaire, or in this case of Willie and Sal, billionaires overnight, you're going to have a lifestyle that may appear, appear appealing to some people. You know, I mean, Miami was a very, remains a very cool place if you're rich, you know, <laughs> to be able to, to live and, and party in, um, particularly party in. And so these guys took full advantage of that. They were world champion offshore powerboat racers, I think four times over. Um, they were, uh, uh, you know, card-carrying members of the Mutiny, which was the, the club in which the Babylon in Scarface was based off of. Uh, they were, uh, they owned properties. They had real estate companies in which they built condos and, and homes. They owned mansions, vacation homes in Vail, uh, condos, one of which was in the very popular and sexy Atlantis Atlantis on Brickle Building, which everybody knows it's that it's the building with the square hole in the middle of it that you see in the opening credits of Miami Vice. It was made famous there. So it was a lifestyle that I understand why, you know, it enables us to do montages to disco music, you know, in episode one. Um, but then the conflict comes and the obstacles come and and the and law enforcement invariably comes. And that's when. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Shit gets dark. 
Yeah, I don't want to give too much away because I highly recommend it. But there, there was one part that was fascinating to me. Just how tedious and, and aggressive uh, law enforcement was after the original trial. How it just kept going. And I think I read a number. It was like oh, close to, th- was it $30 million that was spent on this case to get them back? Well, William Sal spent $25 million on their defense in the first trial in 95, 96. Uh, so uh, as a result, again, not to spoil anything, because this is right in the middle of the show, epi- end of episode three, be, you know, into episode four, because of what happened in that first trial, you can kind of understand why the government would get rather aggressive. Uh, you know, there was a federal judge in the early 80s in Miami who described this community as being on the ragged edge of anarchy. Uh, And it was. Uh, What we were seeing was not simply criminality and violence in the streets, but because of that trickle-down effect of the billions of dollars in narco uh, revenue being generated here, it fell into the private sector, you know, car dealerships. We were the top seller of Rolex watches in the world, the top seller of Dom Perignon champagne in the world in Miami at that time, top seller of obviously, you know, beautiful, expensive, uh, exotic uh, imported cars, whether it was Mercedes, Ferrari, Lamborghinis, et cetera. Um, All that lifestyle that sort of Miami Vice was reflecting, you know, that was really art imitating life, imitating art. Uh, That's what Miami kind of has become, uh, particularly now in this kind of postmodern world that we live in, um, where we have, you know, life imitating art. But then it was art imitating life. Uh, But um, we um, want to try to jump back to my (laughs) jump back to my my point. There's a a lot to talk about here. Um, But on. What were we talking about? I'm sorry. I, I lost my I lost my train of thought. I'm only on one about, cup of coffee. <laughs> I like how wired up you are. But about the, the 25 million that they spent. Yes, the defense. Yeah. So what we saw happen in Miami was that money, in addition to going into all, you know, into the private sector, right? Real estate and cars and whatever jewelry. If you were a jeweler, you were doing great, you know, great, great business in those days. But it also entered the public sector. What do I mean? Law enforcement, um, lawyers, uh, prosecutors, judges, even people were being paid off and bribed uh, at an alarming rate in this community. So what was happening was you didn't just have, like I said, the criminality and the and the and the uh, I should say the drugs uh, and the murder. It was the money. That's what this community was really addicted to was the was the money. And so you had uh, almost every aspect or every element of our criminal justice system became perverted or corrupted by that money. Uh, And so what you saw in this case, not to, again, spoil anything, was essentially the total and utter corruption of our criminal justice system in ways that the government couldn't have even conceived would be possible. And so they understandably wanted to drop the hammer on Willie and Sal uh, uh, after this. Yeah, it's it's fascinating that you bring that up because as as we've been having this conversation, uh, I spoke about how you don't need to watch 
them in order but it's good if you do if you have because there's one part in the original cocaine cowboys where you show the i believe it was the miami police department and that entire graduating class either got arrested or killed and then you fast forward to to this new one and there was that moment where uh sal tells one of it was a sal or willie i'm mistaken this one but how he offers them like 40 kilos of cocaine to, to set him free. And if you think about like how much money that could have been for them. And then you talk about the trickle down effect and the corruption. No, I think it was actually a, th- it was a stash house that contained a thousand. Yeah. I think it was a thousand kilos of cocaine, which at the time wholesale may have been about $40,000 each. So there, I mean, that could have been worth as much as 40 million dollars a wholesale so what i'm saying is you're a police officer making 15 16 18 thousand dollars a year on on the books taxable income and someone offers you literally an eight figure bribe tax-free cat i mean like how i mean what i'm saying is that the temptation was so extraordinary um, that a lot of people succumbed to it. And many of those people, by the way, were not ever caught or exposed or held accountable. That's also a part of this story as well. Man, that's so, uh, yeah, the eight-figure bribe is, whew, that you, you kind of put, you try to, to say that you wouldn't, but there's something that I always like to say, how you never really know how you're going to react to something until it's presented to you. $40 million is kind of crazy. There's a, there's, a, there's a very popular line from the first documentary, Cocaine Cowboys, that John Roberts, said, the wholesaler, uh, cocaine wholesaler says, he says, about Miami at that time, he said, everybody had a price. And so it was just a question of, yeah, you might not be able to entice someone with one kilo or two kilos or $40,000 or even $100,000. But when you have tens of millions of dollars in disposable income, cash available to you. You are selling a product that while illicit is worth more than gold. Uh, You know, I think it tested the metal and the threshold of a lot of, a lot of people who thought that they were above reproach. Last, last couple of questions, because I know we're coming up on time. Has there been a moment while you're going out and either interviewing some of these people and these characters that you're intimidated by them? Because in a way you're kind of, or afraid in the sense of you're kind of exposing them in, in such a grand scale and kind of you're exposing their flaws and their demise sort of, has there ever been any issues or or, or just concerns what approaching them? Not on this particular project, not on the Kings of Miami. The Kings of Miami is a very different kind of story. It's a lot more about community, a family business. Um, you know, we get into sort of themes and, and, and aspects of the humanity of some of these characters and criminals that we didn't really get into in some of the earlier Cocaine Cowboys documentaries. And a, a lot of the people that I met on this project, whether they were criminals or family members of were kind of just normal Miami people, you know, just like, I felt like I was just hanging out at like my friend's house, like grandma's house in Westchester 
in high school or something. Like it just, it, it, it had a very like comfortable and comforting kind of vibe. On some of the past projects, it, it got a little dicier, a little scarier. I mean, going into prison to interview uh, Jorge Riviayala, who worked as the hitman for Griselda Blanco, La Madrina, the godmother, uh, that could be a little intimidating, uh, certainly. Um, and uh, we were not as experienced at, at that point. And, and uh, he was definitely, I mean, this is a man who had confessed involvement in some two dozen murders, was a uh, suspect in a great many more, was serving three life sentences uh, in exchange for his cooperation in lieu of three death sentences. So that was a little bit more of a of an experience, uh, an intimidating experience. Uh, but we did it. We went into three, we interviewed him three different times in two different institutions um, and, and got the, got the job done. Uh, this show is just a different, I mean, I don't know, Kings of Miami just has a different vibe about it. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, there's just, there's, there's really, there's a lot of family, you know, who had nothing to do with the drug trade, who were ostensibly victims of this, you know, who were just decent people. They're just like decent, hardworking neighbors in Miami. Yeah, sort of guilty by association just because of, you know, being family members. There's just assumptions being passed at all. There's no way you didn't know about it. Yeah, but then, then there's certain stigmas also as well. But if you were a kid growing up and your dad was in this business, like, what does that really have to do with you? You know what I mean? Like, wh what are you going to do about it? You're, you know, you're like, you're a child. Um, and then your, your parent goes to, goes to prison. Um, you could say that they they are criminals and they deserve it and they are paying their debt to society and that's all true. But the kids are still victims of that, as are the drug addicts who became hooked on their product. And addiction has led to extraordinary death and pain uh, and suffering and the breakup of families. So I understand where people don't have a lot of, of sympathy for the criminals or the drug smugglers themselves, but there are there is collateral damage. Uh, in, in all of this and families who have to live, you know, they lived in the criminal justice system for decades or they or they had dealt with the, you know, the, the courts or the FBI or having their property seized or maybe even being indicted themselves, uh, whether or not they they were, you know, uh, consciously involved in a, in a drug conspiracy. It gets very in this case, the William Sal case, it was something like when all was said, none, there was dozens of cases and dozens of you know, hundreds of lawyers involved and hundreds of people and families. And it, it, it uh, someone says in the series, there may be six degrees of Kevin Bacon, but in Miami, there's only one or two degrees of Willie and Sal. And that's really true I, uh, until this day. Wow. Wow. That's crazy, man. This is, uh, uh, again, I, I appreciate your time. I got one last question. I want to ask you something about Screwball because uh, that... That one was so unique because you use little kids as actors. I found that fascinating. When I finished watching that, I kind of did a double take. And I was just thinking, man, did Alex Rodriguez's career really plummet over like, was it four or $5,000 in that? 4000 I mean, the, the, that's the that was sort of our log line on that. You can watch Screwball on Netflix as soon as you're done with uh, the Kings of Miami. But uh, yeah, the highest, the career of the highest paid baseball player in history ended over a $4,000 debt between a uh, cocaine addicted fake doctor and his fake tan addicted steroid patient. 
I mean, that's really, that's why we called it screwball. It's like classic. You can't make this shit up because like, it's just only in Miami, Florida fuckery kind of tale uh, that, you know, again, talking about guilt, you know, we're guilty by geography. It's like in Miami, you're going to invariably fall into <laughs> friendships or relationships with fake doctors, deposed third world dictators, Medicare fraudsters, drug smugglers. It's just, it's the vibe of, of the community. It's, it's who's in this community. You know, Miami has a, a, we have a big black market. We have a white market, but most of the Miami economy, it, it exists in the gray market. We're like a gray market economy in Miami. And so, and a lot of those people fall into the black market uh, eventually or, or, or one way or another, but that's kind of, that's what happens here. So if you're going around town looking for a, uh, an anti-aging clinic with a doctor, lots of air quotes for people just listening, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, to help you regain your energy or your lost youth because you're a professional ball player who, you know, your, your body is your fortune, right? Your health and your, uh, you know, and your ability to perform on the field is is how you make a living. Um, you're going to invariably fall in uh, into um, <laughs> into a, a a strip mall storefront clinic where some guy in a lab coat and a stethoscope who is not a doctor uh, is going to treat you. I mean, that's just the that's the way of that's just that's just because Miami. I feel like if you were to get. Alex Rodriguez, a little tequila up, and you pulled him to the side, he'd probably say that he would offer that guy $400,000 to not have to go through what he went through. Oh, yeah. And, and he spent at least probably two, three, four million defending himself against the, the, the biggest suspension in the history of Major League Baseball and failed, in fact. Uh, I think he got a few, few, few games knocked off, but otherwise, uh, you know, um, wound up with, with that record breaking suspension. Billy Corbin, you're the man. I'm a massive fan. Once again, thank you for uh, what you've done with the documentaries. They've been fantastic. And I don't want to say that they've uh, influenced me because I kind of come off weird with the, with the cocaine stuff. But it's been inspiring, man. It's been really cool. And as someone who loves Miami, it's been awesome. Uh, this is the portion of the show where the floor is yours, man. If there's anything you want to promote uh, in particular, where they could find you, uh, feel free. Yeah. Um, hit me up on Twitter or Instagram at Billy Corbin, C-O-R-B-E-N. Uh, I get a lot of hate tweets for Billy Corgan uh, and fan fan tweets as well. Mostly it's fan, it's smashing pumpkins, fan tweets, and then people talking shit about wrestling. Apparently Billy Corgan has something to do with wrestling now. So I get, I get a, a little bit of both, a little love and hate for Billy Corgan, but it's Billy Corbin, C-O-R-B-E-N, both on Instagram uh, and on Twitter. And Nick, thanks so much for the opportunity to uh, to be here and to uh, and thank you for for promoting the uh, the doc, uh, the uh, series, Cocaine Cowboys, the Kings of Miami, uh, now streaming on Netflix. Man, that was fucking dope. Patreon roll call: Nick Chavez, Christopher Velasquez, Daniel Gibson, Derek Platees, Devin Rondone, Corey Johnson, Hoops, Ryan Pisner, Stephen Briggs. Go to the Patreon, can save fifteen percent off with an annual membership. You get two months free. And the Eliminator Survivor Contest is up. Closing is September 8th. All can join and play. Prizes will be eligible for the paid contestants. $500 first place, first place prize. And three merch items, including a custom bomber jacket. At the Lamb Show is where you can find me, at Veterans Minimum. 
is where you can find everything for the show. And shouts to all of you guys, man. Thanks for making some cool shit like this happen. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.